Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Welcome to the show, Dress listeners. Today, you are joining us for part two of our two-part episode with embroidery designer and historian Nadia Albertini. Last week, we learned all about the rich and fascinating history of France's embroidery tradition. Today, Nadia joins us to discuss her incredible career as a designer, as well as the state of this thriving craft today. Nadia, welcome back to the show. So welcome back to the show, Nadia. It's such a pleasure to have you with us again. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And so last week, you provided us with an overview of the history of embroidery, which was incredibly fascinating. So really how it evolved from this primitive decorative technique to a highly developed art form that's produced by skilled artisans. Today, however, I'm excited to talk to you about your work as an embroiderer and an embroidery designer, as well as the present state of the embroidery industry, traveling from the Parisian haute couture ateliers all the way to India. But let's start at the beginning. Can you tell us first when you were first introduced to embroidery? Well, my grandmother taught me embroidery when I was six years old. And it was something that we would practice at home really on a daily basis because she used to uh, work with her sister creating wedding gowns and evening gowns. So she would do the embroidery part and her sister would do the sewing part. So they were um, a pretty close team. So at home, we always had threads and yarns and cotton yarn everywhere and also sequins. I have a very good and very fond memories of cup sequins. I don't know why exactly cup sequins, but I remember having those around me from a very young age. From my teenage years, I knew I wanted to work in fashion or in the creative fields, um, maybe in costume. Uh, it wasn't very clear to me yet, but uh, in magazines, I was uh, sometimes just looking at fashion shows, pictures, and also behind the scenes where things were being made in the ateliers. So that was a part that I was really fascinated with. And am I right? Did you grow up in Mexico? Yes, I did. Um, my parents settled there um, and my sister and I were born there and grew up there. My French friends who would uh, receive their, their mothers, actually, my friend Clementine, uh, her mother used to receive a lot of fashion magazines like Madame Figaro and, and Vogue and all those really beautiful issues during the 90s and early 2000s. And I would look at those images and, yeah, it really made me want to learn the craft and to push a little bit of those techniques that my grandma had taught me when I was a kid. And do you know anything about like how your grandmother learned embroidery? Did she learn it from her mother and so on? Yes, it was a, a family thing. Even if they, they didn't consider themselves professional embroiderers, they really did it because they loved it and they knew how to do it. Something that was very, I think, forming um, in my younger years was uh, to be surrounded by all the colors in Mexico and all the textiles. And I remember my my nanny embroidering some of my clothes growing up. So that was 
really interesting to see the backstrap uh, loom weavers also all around town. They did beautiful, beautiful work. So we always were surrounded by those beautiful textiles. And that is very inspiring. Yeah, it's such an incredibly rich textile and dress tradition in Mexico. And your mother's Mexican, your father is French. And so when your love really blossomed into a career, you decided to go and study in Paris at the age of 18 at the L'Ecole du Paris. And for those of our listeners perhaps interested in pursuing a similar education, can you tell us about what that was like? Uh, L'Ecole du Paris is one of the four applied arts schools in Paris. It's a public school, government fund, and it was really special. It it really specializes even today in textiles, fashion, uh, weaving, embroidery, and tapestry. So those are Dupere's specialities. And there are other schools like L'Ecole Boulle for furniture, L'Ecole Estienne for engraving and everything that is related to graphic arts. So, yeah, they're like sister schools, um, a little bit like the University of the Arts in London that have several schools. This is one of them. And even if I am I'm really grateful because I was able to have a very good education there and very it was very challenging in the sense that it was extremely creative and conceptual. Really, we were pushed to think outside the box and I think that was great. But what I really wanted to do was to really work in the field to be confronted to the real thing. So we first had our, I think our first internship came in the second year and I just had the amazing opportunity to go to work at Chloé for my internship. And I started working in the studio and I just loved it so much. I was supposed to go to the bags department, uh, accessories designer uh, department, but they need help in the embroidery part for fashion. And that's what I, I was put at uh, day one. And after a week of discovering techniques, of playing with materials, I knew I wanted to be an embroidery designer. And I still remember my first job, my first task there was to paint uh, some domed buttons, I think, that we were then covering with broderie anglaise for a dress that had a, a like in, an entire dress appliqued with these sort of little dome bumpy white things. And I understood that embroidery was so much more than just thread and needle. It was appliqué, it was 3D, it was playing with sequins and tubes and wood and yeah, it was uh, a whole universe opened for me. And then when you graduated, did you continue to work for Chloe? Yes. Well, the thing is, I did. I kind of cheated a little bit because it's not that I was. Uh, yeah, I was a little bit bored at school, I have to say. And <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't real enough for me. It was I, I wanted really to to be part of the team and then to be working all those crazy long hours that they work and because it was it was a, an amazing team, especially the atelier. I was lucky because I was one of the few French speaker interns in the company. Everyone was actually from um, the UK and no one spoke French. So I was the one always being sent to the atelier to pick this or do this or cut that or talk to the seamstresses or talk to the French team who didn't speak a word of English. So 
I was always hanging out with them and, and learning a lot from them. I remember Jacqueline Smeyers really well. She was the head of the atelier and she's currently head of the uh, Jean-Paul Gaultier Couture. And I think she's one of the persons that I have learned the most from in the industry. So it was a challenge to kind of do the school and and this job at the same time, because I was always, I I managed to sneak out of school and then go to the atelier and work uh, before the shows. I, I usually took two weeks off from school to just work for Chloe two weeks before the shows, um, night and day. And I pretended to be doing research or working on my projects or being <laughs> sick because <laughs> it, it was it was something that I really loved. It, it's, a, it's a fashion house that um, really resonates with me and and means a lot. So, yeah. Um, and I thought I think they saw that I, I really enjoyed the work. And so when I graduated, they offered me uh, the junior embroidery designer job there. And you worked actually with several different designers that uh, were the head of the house at that time. And can you tell us a little bit about what that collaborative process was like as an embroidery designer working with a fashion designer to kind of collaborate on these designs? Yes, of course. I think that's um, where I really first learned what it was to really work as an embroidery designer in the sense that uh, embroidery is... Uh, embroidery is not actually needed if if we see it from a construction perspective. A collection can be very, very beautiful without necessarily having embroidery, but it's always a plus and it's always unique. And uh, but that means that we all sh- we usually come at the very end of the process. Uh, embroideries are usually decided on at the very last minute so it's it's a hard task to perform because the embroider the fabrics have been decided they have been chosen the colors the shapes and then embroidery has to kind of come on board and 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 finalize the thing in a very you have a very short window to make this happen so the process is different from one designer to the other. Someone is very oriented towards uh, fabric manipulation, for example. And um, one of the designers that I really respect the most is Ivan Mispelari, who was my boss then at Chloe. He makes beautiful, beautiful designs. And he really used to push us towards interesting 3D-ness and uh, fabric playing with fabrics, really, very romantic in a way, but also very modern and always uh, flattering to a silhouette. Then came Paolo Melio Anderson, who is a dear friend and always an inspiration. His sketches are just magical. I mean, I I think I still have a collection of those (laughs) after (gasps) 10 years. And he brought a lot of color to Chloe. I remember uh, his collections were really fierce and and really colorful compared to what we were doing before. He brought patent leather. He brought bright oranges and and blacks and uh, a lot of mirrors. So that was really playful. And we had a lot of fun doing that. Uh, very experimental, I would say. And then came Hannah McGibbon, who had a, a cleaner look, a cleaner style, a lot of pleats, a lot of broderie anglaise, a lot of lace applications. So with each and every one of them, we learned 
a different process and and you need to be kind of a sponge and and be there to catch the little words and the little ideas and then bring them to life it was like well each each embroidery department or embellishment department for the di- different brands it's kind of like a creative laboratory because you do your little thing in-house show swatches get approvals and then you get it made uh really by the bigger, more professional ateliers outside of the fashion brand. Oh, okay. And how important is it as an embroidery designer to understand the construction of a garment, for instance? Is that integral to your training, understanding how a dress is constructed, for instance? As I said, I skipped a little little bit of the school time. (laughs) So probably, um, I mean, I'm not sure I would have learned that there because it's very specific to... Um, as we say, embroidery. But when you're thinking of an embroidery, you have to think of the weight that it's going to have, the base that it's going to go onto. Um, if you're going to have darts on a garment, how many pattern pieces you're going to have and how they're going to connect between them, what drapes in front, what drapes in the back. Um, are you going to be sitting on embroidery? Are you going to be, um, do you have pockets? And if you do, is uh, is it going to look okay if you put your hand in it? Is it going to hurt the one who's uh, wearing it under your arms? You have to be very careful not to put anything too 3D because that's going to hurt your skin. Um, so there's a lot of things that, you know, we kind of, learn during the process and it's also trial and error a lot of the times recently i've been uh i've been developing a line of uh interior uh interiors embroideries and we realize that some of the fabrics are not working they're tearing apart we need to fuse them or we need to attach them in a certain way to the embroidery frame so that they don't suffer during the process people laugh when i say this but every single new embroidery Every season, even with the same designer, it's a new challenge because it's quite unique. Yeah. And I know you said you skipped a little bit of school and all that, but I think it's such a gift when you know that young what you're made to do, you know, what your passion is. It's so exciting. And so from Chloe, you went to work for the famed Maison Le Marier, which has been producing feather and flower work for the haute couture industry since, you know, 1880. You designed feather and flower embellishments for Chanel, Givenchy, Versace. I mean, just to name a few designers while you were working there. Um, I'm hoping you can tell us about that experience and what role the house's histories played in your designs, if any. Yes, it's, uh, well, they have an amazing archive. When I first joined, the archive was like a little bit of a cupboard where we used to just put things in and and no one really was, um, I think we weren't aware of the the importance of, of those swatches, but uh, obviously we'll take a very good care of it, but they weren't like cleanly or clearly put into boxes. And little by little, we started kind of cataloging them and and it also to make our lives, uh, our daily lives and our tasks easier because we had to reference a certain technique, especially because um, th- these flowers and feathers are extremely fragile and they deteriorate with time. And, you know, just by touching them and looking at them, it's they get ruined in a second. So you always have to start fresh. You know, you ha- you always have to start, uh, you, you need to keep making new swatches because the old ones are either crushed or um, they, they fall apart. So we 
we were always in that process of creating new things. And um, so I was in charge of creative development there for a while. I think it's one of the most intense periods of work I've ever had because we used to have nine collections a year uh, for Chanel. Wow. Nine, not two, not four, nine. <laughs> um, between the Tour de Couture, the Tout Prêt-à-Porter, the Cruise, the Resort, then the special for the Métier d'Art, that was pretty intense. And the thing is, well, in France, we have usually six weeks of holiday per year. So if you remove those, because we, we did take our holidays, and you divide the rest of the weeks uh, by the number of collections, you'll see that we had a rush of work every six weeks. So every six weeks, it meant not sleeping for like maybe three nights in a row Wow! Uh, to deliver the collections. Um, and the whole team was and not only the creative part, but everyone was involved and the sourcing of the feathers, the dyeing of the feathers. I learned a lot really uh, from all these people who some of them have been working there for 40 years. I remember Françoise, she was such a lovely lady. She used to do all the special dyeing. She was a colorist. Her job was to do the colors and do the dyeing. For example, when you have a tulip and you have all those veins in the tulip, she would do that to each petal. Wow. So it was really fascinating. And to learn how you dye a feather and how you cut petals, how you have to starch the fabric before you do it in order for this to not to fray. So I learned not only the design part, but I really learned every single little process to make this happen. So it was really interesting. And I have been incorporating flowers and feathers in my designs ever since. Well, I mean, you have such a wonderful resource to pull from when you're being exposed to all of these incredible designs from so many years throughout history, too. Uh, and I will say, dress listeners, that Maison de Marie has, vi- there's videos online. If you YouTube um, the name, you can see it's L-E-M-A-R-I-E. And it uh, there's some really incredible videos uh, showing what Nadia is talking about. So definitely check it out. So after leaving uh, Maison Le Marie, you have since worked for designers such as Jason Wu, Dries Van Noten, and Tori Birch. And I'm hoping you can share with our listeners some of your favorite designer collaborations over the years. What are maybe some collections that you've worked on that, that really spoke to you? Or just, I would just love to hear more about this uh, work that you've done in general. Yes, well, I, I met Jason uh, while working at Le Marier, and um, we really connected uh, creatively and also on our, I think we have similar tastes in, in terms of uh, embellishment, and he is passionate about fashion history and embroidery history. So I went on to work for him, and I had the chance to be part of the team, but also being remote. So I was based in Paris and traveling to New York, every season to get on the inspiration. And then after our little stories were put together and we knew what we wanted to do, I would then travel to India to develop all this with uh, different fashion embroidery companies in Bombay. It was um, very, very nice to have that freedom and to have his trust in terms of what we were designing and and developing. So that was really nice. I, I really enjoyed that time. Yeah, he loves the flowers and and different techniques. So I really had that the, the chance to explore a little bit of of that taste. So it was um, 
it was very rewarding to then see the pieces in the in the New York fashion show. So that was uh, quite interesting. I remember we did, I think it was fall. We also collaborated a lot with Paris embroidery companies. We did a whole season inspired by China with uh, Montex, with wonderful Annie, who used to direct uh, Montex. And um, we did fur incrustations with gold embroidery with them. And we also worked with Cécile Henry on black velvet and bright pink satin work with the Corneli machine that we spoke of last time. To bring all these techniques together was really interesting to be able to explore with that. Then I really enjoyed working with Dries in Antwerp. It was very interesting to see his um, creative process and how he develops fabrics. It's super rich. He probably has every season more than a hundred fabric references and a hundred prints and the jacquard and the beautiful woven fabrics most of them coming from Italy. He has these amazing, amazing Italian vendors that create beautiful things for him. He has cultivated these very close relationships throughout the years. And the same the same, the same has been done with the embroidery companies he works with in Calcutta. So I discovered this city that I have come to really love because of the culture, the people. They're extremely nice. The people that we used to work with there are very, very nice people, uh, especially one family from the Ventures Company, who are lovely and super dedicated, uh, super passionate about what they do, and uh, really respectful of the craft and uh, and the workers. So um, there again, I had a lot of freedom to create. There was obviously a theme and a certain color palette that we needed to follow, but then Dries gave me really that freedom to explore, to come back. Like I used to come with a hundred swatches after two weeks of work and then he would pick from that and say, okay, we're going to put this on the jacquard and then this is going to be with the colors and exploring with different types of sequin shapes. And um, there I, I really met wonderful people who have become really dear friends. So I think that's also a very important part it's not only the collaboration with the head designer and and the suppliers that you have and then you surround yourself with, but it's the team. Are the teams in the fashion department in the studios are one of the most important things. I remember the Dries team is made out of international people, young designers. Or I think probably yeah, we're all. 30, 33, and yeah, very passionate, like a little, a little family, actually. So that was really nice. Yeah, and you said you brought Dries over 100 swatches at one point. I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about what inspires your embroidery design and how important the history of embroidery is to your work and your design process. I think I wasn't really aware of all the background before. I think I've been, I've been discovering this this part of my job for the past maybe five years, this past five years. And obviously every season is different. Every designer is different. So as an embroidery designer, you need to work as a, like you need to really adopt their style and adopt their signature and what they were known for. Obviously, Dries was some of the more ethnic embroideries and we had to look 
on the history of embroidery in India, for example. And the kazab, kazab is metallic yarn. Uh, we used to really do a lot of experimentation with local materials. And for example, with Jason was more about exploring Balenciaga and Givenchy in the 50s and the 60s, that fair work, a little bit of the more romantic side of the 50s with Dior as well. Tori, on the other hand, was all about how print can become an embellishment. And that was really interesting. We did a, a collaboration with Etel Ednan, I remember when I was in New York, um, and her paintings are just so beautiful. And we turned them into sequin dresses that we we managed to get them done in a new, very modern uh, machine in China. So it's always about really getting into the mood, seeing how you can adapt your techniques and your savoir-faire, your know-how, in order to make it happen. You have to really explore everything from scratch again, almost. I have kept, yeah, I've been working in this field and in this job for the past 12 years, and I don't have many possessions, but something uh, that are, is really, really dear to my heart is my archives. I keep trace of pretty much everything that I've designed and or everything that I've seen. I keep either pictures or photocopies or sketches because we're always referencing other things from the past. Maybe you're going to reinterpret a color. Maybe it's going to be a technique. Maybe it's a material. But you always have to keep visual references of these things. I have like entire cupboards of files, plenty of images. And we will absolutely be posting some images of Nadia's beautiful embroidery designs over the years. And we're going to take a brief sponsor break. When we come back, we're going to hear more from Nadia on what she is currently doing as an embroidery designer. Welcome back. So Nadia, you came back to Paris last year after living and working in the United States. And it was here where you wrote your book on the embroiderer, Hoi Bay, which we talked about last week. Um, and today you own and operate your own embroidery studio. Can you please tell the, us about this new venture? Yeah, I came back from New York uh, because I needed to finalize some of the research for the book. And it was a good opportunity for me to really take a, a last look at all these beautiful embroideries that I've been seeing from Rebe. And that also gave me, it, it gives me a lot of inspiration for new materials, new techniques. It's a constant nourishment, actually, to see all this history of embroidery. And people started coming to me, I mean, brands, because I know I know how to make things happen and and how to get the right answers or work with the right embroidery workshops and ateliers around the world actually it's uh, I have had the opportunity to work in France but also in Italy in India a lot and China so brands and studios and now also restaurants come to me and we discuss the project. We, we talk about what is it that they need, what they want to do. And yeah, we make it happen. I, I take the order, I do the development, the creative process, and I find the right atelier who has the right techniques, the right setup to make each and every single project happen. So it's, 
it's really a custom-made process. It's it's really special. For example, for Chanel Cosmetics, um, I did a headband for a special occasion that they wanted to give to their clients. So that was um, uh, we did two thousand pieces. So you know, it's it's very different than um, working for a three-star Michelin restaurant this year on what I call our own, our very own tapisserie de Bayeux because it's. Uh, 40 square meters um, hand-painted by the super talented Catherine Surfers, who is a friend um, and a very talented print designer that I used to work with um, at Dries. And so she's painting this beautiful uh, piece of work and and then we are embroidering on top of it. So it's a, it's a big project for this year. And uh, for me, it's all about collaboration, not only with the brands and with the ateliers, but with people who can bring their own creativity to the um, to the party. I would say, either with a, with a print, with a technique, with a pattern, other ideas. I never thought I would embroider walls for a restaurant. So it's really meeting with people, seeing seeing how how they envision embroidery because they have this probably wrong idea that embroidery is old or not very modern and we can turn it into something super now it's really amazing how we can make it very special yeah and it's really cool to hear all of these different ways and different companies and people that are really embracing embroidery as a art form to be used in all these different ways so that's really cool to see as well and You know, we've talked extensively about embroidery within the context of European and French fashion, but of course, it's a technique that has been developed as an art form in many countries, especially in China, but also India, both places that you have worked. So can you please tell us a little bit more about the embroidery industry in India? Maybe provide a little bit of a brief history, but also let's discuss its role in contemporary fashion, because you mentioned to me that 80% of the embroidery we see in fashion today is made in India. Yes, I I think I'm not wrong when I say that because I have I have seen so much being made there and I know how many people work there and how many people work in France in especially in Paris and Italy that yes I guess that probably 80 85% of everything embroidered either comes from Delhi or Bombay or Calcutta somehow and well in the 18th century French court ladies already used to send their patterns to be embroidered in China and India through the these trading companies. And it's interesting that we don't really talk about it, but what I mean by that is this industry that we know today didn't start in the 20th century, it started way back. And I think it's interesting to create what I what I want to create personally is to create bridges between the different countries and the different cultures of embroidery because it has always been an international trade. Textile has always been a link through different countries. And my my passion is embroidery, so I, I know more about that. Yeah, there's a lot of very good companies that work from India. The ones that I have the most respect for are probably uh, Massimiliano Modesti, who works in Bombay, and Le Sage as well in Chennai. Uh, he is Mr. Le Sage, so Jean-Francois Le Sage has his uh, company in, in Chennai. There are other two companies, it, Italian, uh, who work in Bombay, Giato and Rilievi. They're extremely creative. 
And another very good Indian company, the Susi Menkes, actually visited and did a very interesting review she showed in, on her Instagram account, is Chenakia in, in Bombay. I think they're one of the best. And obviously there are many, many more. It's just that um, those are the ones that I'm close to or have worked the most with. So I, I know them better. And are you working with both men and women there? Uh, are men and women both working as embroiderers there? Well, uh, no, um, that's the main difference between our two embroidery cultures. In France, most uh, most ateliers employ only women. In France, embroidery is a women's job. The difference is that in India, embroidery is done mostly by men. It's a, it's a Muslim craft there, and it has been really uh, heritage from the Mughals in, in that era and how Persian invaders came to India and they brought with them this beautiful craft. That's the main difference. And I remember when I was 22 years old, when I first went to India, I think they were working on something on the frame and I wasn't really able back then to express myself in Hindi correctly. And I, I, I wasn't managing to make my ideas understood. So I just asked for thread and needle. And um, as a young foreign, young, like, yeah, woman, they were really surprised to see someone like me sit on the floor, take a needle and do it in front of them and show them what is it exactly that I wanted done. They probably had never seen a woman embroidering. And um, suddenly 50 men were looking at me doing their job and they were really laughing. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was it was really surprising. I, I had no idea that I was doing something completely shocking. And do you think that's, is that just part of the cultural traditions that carry on to this day? Yes, obviously a lot of women work in the embroidery companies, but it's more on the merchandising side. Uh, it's not really in the making of embroideries. They participate choosing materials or selecting the materials, selecting the different bases, etc. But they're not really there in front of the frame embroidering. And really, it's it's a very physical job, actually. It's long hours sitting in front of the frame. It's very, very tiring, I, I have to say. When I spend maybe five or six hours in front of the frame, there's days that I'm, I'm really exhausted. Right. And you see, you know, these embroidery ateliers today and they're just flooded with light, um, you know, because I'm sure natural light is incredibly important to being able to see and do your craft. But also I can imagine finding a comfortable position that will allow you to sit for that long of a period of time is important too. Yes, it is. We need to find <laughs> ways, you know. Uh, sometimes the easiest thing is just to have a very low frame and sit on the floor um, the Indian way. I like doing it that, that way, really. Chairs and, and, yeah, no, they're not the most comfortable. Sit on a little cushion on the floor and you'll be fine. <laughs> so we're going to take another brief sponsor break. And when we get back, we are going to continue talking about the skill and hand craftsmanship that goes into embroidery in today's day and age. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. 
And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation, so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back. So, Nadia, why is the level of skill and handcraftsmanship employed in embroidery so important in today's day and age? How are you and others working to preserve this tradition, but also you've talked about it a little bit, but how are you bringing it into the 21st century? Why is that so important? Well, we have to understand that uh, we're in an industry that needs to make um, it's an it's an industry of dreams. First of all, we're here to make dreams come true. So we're all looking to create beautiful things, and we need to be unique, and we need to be different, and we need to really put forward the most innovative and interesting ideas. And I'm not against machines. I'm not. And if if a machine can replace a certain task, I'm up for it and it's fine. But there are certain things, certain results, certain delicatesse and refinement that a machine will never be able to replicate. The uniqueness of the hand is something that we will never be able to replace because it's a link between your eye, your history, your culture, who you are, and the passion that you put into what you're making. And I think that um, luxury today for me is that, is taking the time to create something with a soul. And I think that's that's why it's so important to preserve these techniques, not only embroidery, but block printing and feather working and, and flower working, pleating, everything that is made with with the hands and by the hands. Somebody is really putting their their whole history in that. So... If we want to achieve unique products and beautiful creations, we need to always incorporate a little bit of the hand. There's a lot of things that can be done, even in embroidery today. For example, I've been exploring laser cutting organzas to create ruffles. And I want to explore 3D printing new beads 
or um, I want to explore 3D printing faceted mirrors from the 20s that we can no longer find. So the technology, the, ma the machines will always be there, but at the end, the hand is the one deciding what is going to be made. So hand and machine are not competing. They really need to go together. It's tradition, but with a modern twist, I hope. And yeah, I think that's what I, I, I've always wanted to do. And what I love is when you see an embroidery and you first don't really understand how it's made and you have to take a second look and probably a third look. And that's why always I, I loved about Rebe, even embroideries from the 50s, is that there are layers of lecture there. You have to really take a closer look and understand that there, there were different stages of creation. I love what you said about embroidery uh, and embroiderers being dream makers. That's such a wonderful image um, to bring to mind. And, you know, today embroidery is hugely popular, actually. Embroiderers have millions of followers on Instagram. So what advice do you have to our listeners who might want to take up embroidery and become dream makers themselves? Please join us. <laughs> there's not many of us left, really. I, I'm very happy that there's um, a renewal in in all this industry and, and craft. I think it's very, very positive because when I when I was growing up, people, even today, people look at me, you're what exactly? You're an embroidery what? Um, <laughs> so I need to really explain what I do. So I'm very happy that younger generations are are picking up on these techniques. And I, I love teaching. I used to teach in London and, and New York, and I hope to be able to do it again soon. But yeah, I think uh, sometimes it can be a little bit uh, intimidating. Uh, you were talking about the videos that are online from these French houses. Everything can be sometimes so chic and so polished and so perfect. It doesn't have to be that way because, I mean, you're seeing the, the top of the top, la crème de la crème, but embroidery is such a universal language and you can make it yours. You just have to pick thread and needle and play with it, really experiment and have fun. And if you want to embroidery, like use uh, screws or uh, pasta, noodles, um, I don't know, what you, whatever you have at home, you can embroider and, and have fun with. And of course, it's about being passionate and, and not taking no for an answer. You know, if you if you want to work somewhere or if you want an internship or if you want to go to a certain school, just keep trying until they say yes. So it's about, yeah, being a little bit of stubborn sometimes and taking every single opportunity you have to show who you are and, and what you're passionate about. Well, I know you have certainly inspired me to pick up my needle and thread again. So I'm sure our dress listeners are inspired too. Thank you so much for being here with us today, all the way from Grand Paris. Thank you. It was such a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and Nadia, before you go, can you tell us how our listeners can find you? I'm on Instagram, Nadia underscore embroidery. And I try to post a little bit of my work and a little bit of uh, the historical research that I do. And every time I travel, I try to catch a little bit of embroidery here and there. So, And you have a website too, correct? Yes, NadiaAlbertini.com. Okay. And of course, we'll be posting links to both of these things. And we will also keep an eye out for your book. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nadia. She's such a fascinating woman. And I really love when we meet 
current day artisans that are carrying on these artistic traditions casts that extend back really thousands of years. Right. And I really love how she knew and followed her passion from such a young age and really just went for it. She's very inspiring. I, I, she, I definitely picked up my two-year-old embroidery project again after talking to her. And I know it sounds intimidating, but it really is easy to start an embroidery practice. You can get any number of kits online and the internet has made it so easy to learn different stitches and techniques from all the embroiderers who have Instagram accounts. Kristen Gula of Goulash Threads is one of my favorites, but there are so many others. That does it for us this week, dress listeners. May you consider decorating your clothing with the art of embroidery next time you get dressed. Remember to tune in this Thursday for the latest edition of Fashion History Mystery, where we address Christians from you, our listeners. We love hearing from you. So if you'd like to email us, please do so at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also direct message us on Instagram, dressed underscore podcast, where you will also find images accompanying each week's episode at dressed underscore podcast is also our Twitter handle. And you can follow us on Facebook at dressed podcast without the underscore. For additional readings for each week's episode, check out our show notes at dresspodcast.com. And don't forget about our merch store at tpublic.com forward slash dress. That's tee.public.com forward slash dress. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes this show possible each and every week. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.